So, just wanted you to see the holier you are, you are the redder you get. I have a ways to go here, sir. Appreciate you, sir. This is uh, Bill Parker. He's one of our elders. He's going to pray for me. So, Father God, we pause before Paul preaches each Sunday to lift him up to you and, and request a special blessing on him as he um, speaks to us about your scripture and our way of trying to follow you, God. So we ask your blessings upon him today that you would give him courage, that you would, your hand of strength would undergird him, that you would bless him with wisdom, God, that he would rightly be able to show us what the scripture says and uh, teach us what you would have us to learn. We thank you for him, ask your blessings upon him and his family, and your blessings upon us today as we listen to your words through him. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much, Bill. So you're going to feel like that you, you've been in this a lot, but we've been talking about Isaiah 52 and 53 for this entire time of Lent. But today we're going to go a little bit more in depth. So in your Bibles, turn to Isaiah 53, starting with, excuse me, 52. So 50, 50, 52 will end up as we go, but 52 starting with verse 13. And then we're going to go all the way through verse 12 of chapter 53. So the end of 52 through the 12th verse of 53. See, my servant will prosper. He will be highly exalted. Many were amazed when they saw him, beaten and bloodied, so disfigured that one would scarcely know he was a person. Again, he will startle, and again, you can hear two words in there. There's a Hebrew play on words. And again, he will startle or sprinkle, uh, and well, I'll explain that here in a little bit. Many nations, kings will stand speechless in his presence, for they will see what they had not previously been told about. They will understand what they had not heard about. Who has believed our message? To whom will the Lord reveal his saving power? My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, sprouting from a root in a dry and sterile ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with bitterest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way when he went by. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weaknesses that he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God for his own sins. But he was wounded and crushed for our sins. He was beaten that we might have peace. He was whipped and we were healed. All of us have strayed away like sheep. We have left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the guilt and sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. From prison and trial, they led him away to his death. But who among the people realized that he was suffering for their sins, that he was suffering for their punishment? And actually, if you have the NIV, it says he was cut off from the land of the living. He had done no wrong, and he never deceived anyone, but he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. And hear this, before you think that the Jews crucified him or the Romans crucified him, or, but it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and fill him with grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have a multitude of children, many heirs. He will enjoy a long life, and the Lord's plan will prosper in his hands. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of what he has experienced, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear all their sins. I will give him the honors of one who is mighty and great because he exposed himself to death. He was counted among those who were sinners. He bore the sins of many and interceded for sinners. I want to tell you, but Bob, our pastor, is a stud because he chose this Sunday for us to tackle three things. Not one, three. 
Palm Sunday, Isaiah 52 through 53, and the part of the creed that is, he descended into hell, which is the most controversial part. So I was like, Bob, thank you for that. Um, so, but that's where we are this morning, and I'm going to spend a little bit of time talking to you about this part of the creed, and, and, and we'll do it together. But you get to the part of the creed where it's, he descended into hell, how do you get there? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. And this part, there, if you go and you start researching this and start reading this, you can find some crazy people with crazy theories on the exterior edges of, of what Christian thought is. But we're going to split right down the middle, and then I'm going to kind of try to help you explain, especially using this Isaiah text, of what that means. But Kevin rightly pointed out, Kevin who read Scripture, who's on staff with us, Kevin rightly pointed out this past week, earlier on, on, on Tuesday when we met, this part of the creed has to do with what happened on Saturday, so get this, we know Easter, we know we're on Palm Sunday right now, we're entering into the Passion Week, all these incredible things that happen in the book of John you're going to see just kind of spelled out, leading all the way to the upper room, the Monday Thursday service, just kind of like what we're going to have Thursday, and then you're going to have the, the betrayal, the beating, the flogging, the crucifixion, the death on Friday, we know what happens on Good Friday, and then we know about the resurrection on Sunday, but what happens on Saturday? And that's what this part of the creed is attempting to address, I believe. He descended into hell. And so let me tell you, this. I'll give you, share with you a story about kind of what, what happened. We wish we knew what happened. So about uh, maybe a month ago, Cassie Mumford, before she got married, when she was here around and my daughter Molly was here and back from college and Hannah was obviously around. And so the five of us decided, hey, let's go hiking in the gorge. Do you know what we did? We took my truck, which is a truck, not an SUV. So it's a cab. And so we've got five adult-sized people in there. But you know what? It's the year 2019, and you evidently can't go anywhere without your dog. So in our truck cab, we had five adult people and two full-size dogs. In a truck cab for an hour-and-a-half drive, the last half an hour, which is like this, you know, it's, it's great, but our dogs are just flinging all over the place. And it's like having two velociraptors in the car with you. Like, I mean, literally, there, you know, our dog doesn't like this dog in the front seat, and she's like, and the dog in the back seat's like, and, you know, I I'm, I'm feel like the guy in Jurassic Park that's just kind of like, they're like that, and we're talking sweet, but every once in a while, they're and so we're like, well, we'll take them on a hike. That'll get them all worn out. We're all in the cab of the truck, remember? There's no escaping. Like, we're there. And I'm kind of like, does my warranty cover dog mauling? Anyway. We hike the Babel Tower Trail. That's a good down and back. And we're like, oh, the dogs are going to be so tired. We get back to the car and they're still, well, we're like, well, it's 45 degrees out. It's dinner time. We're going to go eat dinner. We can't bring the dogs in with us. What are we going to do? Leave them in the truck cab with each other for an hour while we go eat. Louise's famous rock house restaurant, by the way. It's a good place to get about a... You know, I'm, we're leaving them, and, the, and they're just looking at each other in the front seat, in the back seat. <laughs> you know, like, what? Come back out from our meal, and, I, and we just kind of let it go. We're, I can't even look. If my truck's here, when we get back, that's great. If not, whatever, we'll walk. And we kind of come back, and like, my, our dog is just asleep on the front seat, and Cassie's dog is just asleep. And I was like, I don't, what happened while we were gone? You know the movie Pets that just came out recently? I secretly, the 14-year-old inside me is like, when we left, our dog turned around and was like, hey, look, I don't want to get in trouble any more than you do. I am a good boy. They tell me that all the time. You need to stay back there in the back seat. We might get some scraps, okay? You stay there. I'll stay here. Okay, good. 
And then they just went to bed. I, I, I want to know what happened in the truck that went from Velociraptor to Sleeping Dogs. I want to know what happened. But the same token, I think we wanted to know, we want to know what happened in Saturday. And so when we go to the creed and we go, he was crucified, dead, and buried, he descended into hell. First of all, let's go ahead and jump right into this first word. Hell in this text is not the antithesis of heaven. Hell in this text is understood in the Old Testament way of the place of the dead. So if it helps you to substitute the grave, Hades, or Sheol, which I'm sure you walk around going, Sheol, you know, and you just say that word a lot, probably not. But when I say the creed to myself, when I'm just trying to remember it, I, I say it to myself, he was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into the grave on the third day, because it helps me remember what literally is happening. It, when we get to the part of one holy Catholic and apostolic church or holy Catholic church, by the way, that means to Catholic means Catholicity, or it's togetherness, not like the Roman Catholic. So I say one holy Christian because it just helps me remember that. But when you get to this part, if you need to say he descended into the grave, that's what we're talking about. Jesus did not go to the place called hell and, you know, lightsaber fight Satan like some people on these really far crazy things say. He went into the grave. And so what we're talking about right now is trying to understand what is called the intermediate state. And some of y'all are like, is that like West Virginia? It's not really a state, but kind of, no. Or Oklahoma, anyway. The intermediate state is where you are between when you are upright and living and your final state, which is your you with Christ in your resurrected new body. If you didn't understand that, what we as Christians believe is that we die, and, and, and granted, I'm, I'm gonna jump over the intermediate state, we die, eventually our bodies are gonna be resurrected, we will get then at the proper time, we'll have a new body and there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. C.S. Lewis says even about our new bodies that were we even to see the lowliest person on earth in their new body, we would be tempted to fall down on our knees and worship them because we're gonna have a new glorious body. If you wanna think about the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus's glory is revealed and he sees, anyway. The intermediate state. You live, you die, and then you're resurrected. Well, you think to yourself, how did we get there? How, how did we get to that part? So where we come to the intermediate state where we get to what Jesus happens is, where, where Jesus' place is, between life and our final state, which is to be resurrected in a glorious new body, living with Christ, we're in what's called the intermediate state. And so this is reflected in Jesus' time, it had come to mean this. In Jesus' time, you had two sets of people. You had the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection of the dead at all. They just thought that when you died, you went down to the place of the dead. You went down to Hades, you went to Sheol, you went down to the grave, and you were there. That's what you were. But the Pharisees, by the time Jesus had come along, had been looking at Scripture, and they began to understand that Christ or or God was talking about resurrection in the Scripture. And so they would take things like Psalm 1610 and look at it, where the writer of the Psalm, David, says, and you will not allow your godly one or your beloved one to rot in the grave. We would go to this text, and we would come to Isaiah 53, 10, 11, and 12, and we would see in talking about the death and suffering of the of, of the suffering servant, but then talk about his long life and many children. What are we talking about here? We're talking about resurrection. If you were to go back any further to think, well, well maybe that's reading too much, Isaiah makes it perfectly clear in Isaiah chapter 26, verse 19, if you wanna go back and look back that up later on, he says, for there will be a resurrection both for the righteous and the unrighteous will rise. And then kind of the coup de grace, the, the really stickler of it, it would be Daniel 12, 2, where Daniel specifically talks about a resurrection of the dead. And so the Pharisees began to realize that there would be, in their intermediate state, we would live, we would die, our body would go into the grave, 
And then at a proper moment, there would be a resurrection because that's what they're believing in Scripture. Well, then what do we as Christians believe about this intermediate state now as we look at this through the lens of what Christ did? Christ, through the new covenant, redefines what we understand about the intermediate state, about the place of the grave, about what happened on Saturday between Friday and Sunday. And so I'll explain to you. What we know is that Jesus changes what we understand about the intermediate state exactly from what happens and what transpires, not only in Easter, but what happens on Good Friday. So on Good Friday, on Luke 23, 43, the thief on the cross begins to taunt Jesus. The other, the other thief turns and says, have you no fear? Do you not fear God? Do you not understand this man is guilty? Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He basically professes his faith for Christ right there on the cross. And what does Jesus say to him? He turns and says, today you will be with me in paradise. There was no like, for a while you're gonna be in the place of the dead. We're gonna wait on a resurrection. No, no, what does he say? Today you will be with me in paradise. Paul expounds on this in the first chapter of Philippians. It's actually Philippians 1.23. And he begins to tell these people something that they find very interesting. And he begins to say, listen, there's part of me that wants to be with you, but part of me wants to die. And he says this, because I know that to live is for Christ, but to die is gain, because I can't wait to go be with Jesus. There's no like, I can't wait to go lie in the grave for a while and then go be with Jesus. But then he expounds on that in 2 Corinthians 5, 8 and 9. 2 Corinthians 5, 8 and 9, he expounds on it one more time and he says this, for we know that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so what are we saying now about the intermediate state? What happens? What we know is that Christ through the new covenant has transformed how we understand this. When we die, it will be the model set for us just like with Christ. We will die. Christ goes into the grave on Friday his body goes into the place of the dead, the grave, on Saturday. And on Sunday, what happens? His body, recognizable with the nail scars, eating fried fish with the disciples, is resurrected on Sunday. We can see him, and then what happens later on? We're going to get to this. I'm going to spoil you in the creed, but he's going to ascend just as we also too will go up to meet the Lord, just like it says in, in Thessalonians. So our new understanding of the intermediate state is now that we get through this and through scripture, is this, we die, and when we die, immediately our spirit goes to be with the Father. Just like what Christ said, today you will be with me in paradise. Immediately our spirit goes to be with the Father. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Our body will go into the grave. That's the intermediate state. Then there will be a bodily resurrection. You don't get to just go, go check out both First and Second Thessalonians. Paul even talks about this a little, little bit in Second Corinthians 5. There will be a bodily resurrection. We will go to heaven, to, we, our bodily resurrection, and then if you read Revelation, there will be a new heaven and a new earth, and we will have new bodies that will be glorified. And so now we have this understanding and this hope because of this whole idea of Christ descending into the grave or descending into hell. We now understand what our lives will be like because Christ also did it as well. So when we look at in this text, there's a lot that's in this text. It's a lot. I'm not going to be able to go verse by verse like I do because I had to explain that part. And, you know, Danielle and I had this conversation about, she's like, the intermediate state? Tell me more, you know. And I, and I was kind of like, man, if my wife is kind of like wanting to know about this, we can't just jump over it. So let's talk about Isaiah 52 and 53 first. And I want to give you this, this first incredible point of it is that Isaiah 52 and 53 were taught as messianic prophecies by the Jews themselves all the way up to the 12th century. 
up to the 12th century, and I mean the 12th century like in the 1100s, and we're in the, 20, you know, the 20s here. We're talking about the 1100s. We're talking about just about 1,000 years ago. They taught this as having referred to the Messiah. But something happened in the 12th century, and they flipped it, and they said, no, 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 we don't think this refers to the Messiah. We think the suffering servant is actually Israel, which presents a lot of different problems. For one, how is Israel going to suffer for the sins of Israel and cleanse Israel, you know? Secondly, what does it very clearly say about the suffering servant? He was innocent and sinless. What does the entire Old Testament tell us? Israel is completely sinful. Like every time we turn around, they're doing something dumb. Moses can't even go away for just even a little bit before Aaron's got like golden calves and they're doing the Macarena around it. I mean, it is just, they are sinful, sinful. And so there's a whole bunch of problems with that. So we know and we understand that's why we continue to bring this out as we're going through the passion narrative that this is referring to Jesus Christ. So I'm gonna jump through this and we're, it's gonna be a whirlwind tour of the end of 52 and 53, but hang on because we need to talk about death and that's where we're going. We're gonna talk about Christ's death but how Christ's death informs our death. Isaiah 52, the very first part of this is we're gonna go paragraph by paragraph and as we talk about Jesus we talk about the fact that he shared with us the most human thing, which is death. One of the most human things is death. Actually, it's, it's a thing that anything that lives on this earth is gonna experience at one time or another, death. And death up to this point had been a finality. But as we're looking forward towards the resurrection, we've gotta understand that Isaiah is telling us something else about death and what happens. So starting in verse 13, 14, and 15, remember, I'm gonna take it paragraph by paragraph. Look how this text starts out in verse 13. It says that he prospered. If you get that, that is trying, that is illicitly telling you the purpose of Christ's life was death. And he prospered in that. He fulfilled it. He was so acquainted. The other part of our condition that he embraced death. But then the other part where we take this even further where it talks about how badly he was beaten that he was not even recognizable was that Jesus in his humanity was actually denied basic human rights. Nowadays, we would call the United Nations to go and investigate any country that did this to someone as a form of punishment. But this form of punishment was done to our Lord. In his humanity, he was even denied basic human rights. And so then we get to this part in verse 15. And it says, And so again, once again, he will startle many nations, but there is a play on words here in the Hebrew because the word is startle, but it sounds like the Hebrew word for sprinkle, and that sprinkle would have been the ceremonial thing that they did every time they went to go worship the Lord, to sprinkle, and it would be a cleansing anointing of the blood of a lamb or the blood of an ox, and it would be sprinkled. And so when you get this part in verse 15, it's amazing because what he's trying to say is, like this blood is a ceremonial cleansing, people are not going to believe that the one that they killed, now he actually cleanses them through the blood that they spilt when he died. He will startle them with this sprinkling of blood. Let me get to verses verses one through three of chapter 53. And we get this part where we we begin to understand this, how this ties in with the Gospels. Because what does Jesus say about his parables? He says, listen, I'm gonna speak to them in parables so those that have open hearts and that the Lord wills to hear will hear it, but that those that think they already know, their ears are gonna be closed up to it and they will not hear it. And so we get this, we get this whole part, the hidden nature of Christ's message here in verses one through three. 
Some are going to see it, and some are not going to see it. And if you remember, actually, from Matthew 13, 44, when he talks about the treasure that was hidden in a field, and someone found it and then sold everything so that they could get the field and then the treasure as well. And it begins to talk to you that Jesus is not an Adonis. Part of his ministry is to not have beautiful, black, curly hair and big teeth and a wife that talks like this. That's Joel Osteen, by the way. That was not part of his ministry. He does not do that. Attractional ministry is not what he's about. He is about giving the message of God, not the message of man. And I want to tell you this truthfully. The message of man is always attractive to another man. Or to, the message of man is always attractive to humanity because it is on our level. But what would happen if God came through a person and began to speak eternal godly truths about life, death, reality, holiness, sinfulness, and people's propensity to be elite in sin? What would happen? He would be resurrected. His glory was veiled in plain humanity, the text tells us, and because his message was God's and not man's, we rejected him. But then it talks about the way that we rejected him in verses four, five, and six. And I want you to pay attention in verses four, five, and six. This will transform how you ever read this from now on to the pronouns that are used. Look at the pronouns, are and we, and then he and him. Notice in these verses what we bring in this equation. We bring sin, sorrow, iniquities, burdens, and what does Jesus get? All of them on him. He takes all of them. He bears our burdens. He bears our sorrows. But then also, then there's the part where it gives back to us. By his stripes, we are healed. By the marks on his back, we get given life. We thought, we thought that his punishment his punishment was because of his own sin, but it was actually because of our sin, for it was the Lord's will to lay upon him the sins of us all. And so this, again, just comes back to this whole idea of what do, what do we bring to our salvation? We bring nothing. We bring sin, sorrow, disappointment, failure. That's what we bring. And in exchange, we get life through the gospel of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. But you know what? When we talk about redemption, this is the first redemption we have to talk about. How many of you had an, a younger brother? Is it just me? Like, I kept tabs on here when we were in a car ride. I wouldn't respond, but I would count mentally. Because you know what? You're, you're shit up for yourself, and I will count. And by the time had we gone home and there was 45, you're cashing in 45 thumps to my ear with my fist, Right? You're cashing that in later on. You don't write, don't write checks that your butt can't get. Did your mom say that to you? Or just my mom, maybe she's from New Jersey. Anyway, um, but that's what Jesus does. He takes all of our bad stuff, and at the cross, he cashes it in. For what? Beatings, the crown of thorns, the flogging, the nails, the taunts. The spirit of the side, he cashed all that in in the worst way possible. What we gave him and what we got back. Let me get verses seven, eight, and nine. And again, we talked about this last week. Behold the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God. But if you look, as you look at verses seven, eight, and nine, I want you to understand that something different is happening. And this is incredible because remember, Isaiah is written hundreds of years before Christ. What was the Mosaic law? The sins would be placed on a lamb, the lamb would be slaughtered, the blood would be offered, and the shepherds, the people that own the lamb, 
their sins would be cleansed because of what the lamb had done. Only in Christianity is it flipped over. The shepherd dies for the sheep. So that's what seven, eight, nine are trying to tell you. Usually you sacrifice a lamb. Well, this time the shepherd sacrifices himself for the sheep. Jesus is not a martyr. His death wasn't some big accident. Had they really known, they wouldn't have killed him. No, Jesus' death is a sacrifice. And then the parks about this, he says, he, as a sheep is silent before the shears, he said no words. Do you know why? If you are there on a mission and you have said everything there is to say and you have been rejected and handed over to death, you're quiet. You've said all there is to say. Now the task ahead of you is to go to the cross. And so that's why he's silent before Pilate. That's why he's silent as the leaders of the religious school are smacking him and punching him. And then we get verses 10 and 11. And this has to do with his vindication, 10, 11, and 12. Jesus is gonna be vindicated He's gonna be vindicated, he's gonna be vindicated. And I love that in in actually seven, eight, and nine, the NIV says he was cut off from the land of the living. That helps you and I understand even more the part of the creed, he descended into hell. He descended into the grave, he was cut off from the land of the living. Now when was he cut off from the Father? He was cut off from the Father on the three hours that the world went dark and there was silence. And what does Christ say at the end of that time? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But when he dies and goes into the grave, his spirit goes to be with the Father. And he's gonna be vindicated, and we understand this, and the beauty of these texts are hundreds of years ago, he says, but when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have a multitude of children. And the incredible thing about this is that Jesus never married anyone, he never had any children here on this earth through sex and marriage, He never did, and that would have been considered to Jews one of the greatest marks against him, to not have children, to not have anyone. But though we look at Abraham, and Abraham couldn't have children either, and the Lord finally blessed he and Sarah with a child one day, and that child through Isaac was gonna, all the many nations were gonna come. Jesus never had any children, except for what he accomplished in the flesh on the cross by completely fulfilling the law means that all of us who were declared unrighteous, and and by the way, unrighteous is a kind word for filthy, dead in our sin sinners, now because of his death can be called righteous and children of God. And so what does this mean? What does this mean? I told Bob again, I was like, Palm Sunday, he descended into hell in Isaiah 52 and 53, wow. Bob probably is doing a much better job with that over in traditional right now than I am. But when we talk about death, this text tells us so much about death. Death is that inescapable foe that's waiting at the end of the hallway for all of us. What does the creed in Isaiah 52, 53 want to tell us about death? The first thing is this, and these are just simple short points. Because Christ suffered, crucified, was dead and buried and went into the grave and then was resurrected, because of his death, it removes the fear of the unknown that we might have about death. Because of Christ's death and his testimony through it, we know what is going to happen to us. Now, we don't know how we're gonna die. We don't know if we're gonna die instantaneously or we're gonna die in a hospital bed for a long time, and those things may cause us anxiety, but we know something. At the moment of our death, at the moment where we cease to have a heartbeat and brain activity here in this world, immediately our spirit goes to be with the Father. Immediately. Our body might be in a grave and people might cry over us, but we are in heaven with our Father. 
And one of the things that I love, and I, I have a, a kind of a morbid sense of humor, um, there's all the time where we're around church and someone will walk through church that we haven't seen in forever, and I will say as they walk in the door, I told people you were dead. It's really funny when they're older, it's, it's, to me, it is anyway. But I get that from my grandfather. My grandfather sat at the front of People's Bank in a desk, and people would come through and they might not have come, they maybe there's one time a year they were coming in to cash, you know, their check from getting tobacco, you know, tobacco money in in eastern North Carolina and Rocky Mount. And they would come in and they would walk right up and begin to talk to him and he'd say, Miss Maybelline, I told people you were dead. Well, you know what? The reason why that is so funny is because we, if we don't ever talk about death, death is this thing that we just go, oh my gosh, we're going to deal with death. Newsflash, we're all going to die unless Jesus comes back and we're all just with him, which would be awesome too. But other than that, we're all going to die. So why not talk about it? Why not talk about the fact that we're all going to die? Because we know where we're going to go. Immediately, Jesus turns to the thief, today you will be with me in paradise. Paul even says it. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord the other part that removes fear is that some of us, we go, well, I don't know if I want to be present with the Lord. I don't know, that just seems kind of crazy. I don't know about that. The other part of it is it removes any doubt about what kind of Lord we have in that our Savior died for us so that we could be with him and be his children for all eternity. So it removes then this doubt about the goodness of God. If you ever want to know whether God is good, you go back and you read the end of this text. It wasn't the Jews that crucified him. It wasn't the Mormons. I mean, the good gosh. (laughs) Wow. They've done a lot of bad things, to be fair. Holy underwear, the least of these. The Romans, Romans and the Mormons might get together and they'll be the morons, but anyway, um, It wasn't either the Jews or the Romans. It was the Lord's goodwill. The scripture tells us clearly it was the Lord's goodwill to crush Christ for two reasons. One, to fulfill the law. And the byproduct of that is anyone who would put faith in the Son of God, the suffering servant, God would have them as his children in heaven forever. Does that sound like a Lord you want to meet? Yeah, Especially if you have this family here on earth that you're kind of like, I know I'm blood relatives to them, but I've never felt apart. You are part of even greater. And the final is this. What else does it remove? It removes the fear and the sorrow about us leaving people behind. Yeah, when we die, we're going to leave people behind. That's what's happened for every person in the history of the world. They've died and left people behind. But what does Isaiah 53 in the first six verses tell us? Who carries the sorrows of the people of the earth? Jesus. It says, we did not realize that it was our sorrows that he was carrying. So even when you die, even when you go away, you're not able to carry people's sorrows. But God, who's able to carry the cross and the sins of the world, carries the sorrows of those you leave behind. And you have hope because now, through Christ's death, you know where you're going. You know how good God is. And you know who's here caring for the people that you left behind. And death, all of a sudden, is not this enemy that stands before us. Death, all of a sudden, is this enemy that has been stripped. And you can say like Paul, I know to be here to live is to Christ, but to die is to gain. And the beautiful thing about having communion this Sunday is this. The beautiful thing about it is that for us, we reflect 
back on Christ's story as he talked to his disciples, and we look at how open and honest he was about talking to them about death, he says to them several times, and we talked about this last week, I am going away. Where I am going, you can't come. And they, what do you mean? And then he even says it again. It's actually better for you if I go away. But then what does he follow that up with? I am not going to eat of this ceremonial meal again until you are with me in my kingdom. So that's why one of the things that we just can't wait for about death, and you're kind of like, you can't wait for death? I want to be honest with you. I'm a little bit not excited about dying right away. I'd kind of like to have some grandchildren and things like that first. But the prospect of going and having my Savior for all eternity Having this meal with him, and I know you're kind of like, it's a meal. Hey, guys, we get excited about Thanksgiving. This ain't going to be nothing compared to that holy, heavenly Thanksgiving we're going to have. But Jesus said, I wait for you. I will have it again, but not again until you are with me in my kingdom. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. Every time you get together, do it in remembrance of me. The same way he took the cup, and he said, this cup represents the blood of the new covenant, my blood. My blood that will be shed for you. Every time you get together, do it in remembrance of me. And so today we celebrate what's coming for us all, death. And death, the death of Christ opened the door of heaven for us. And our deaths allow us to go through it. 